Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time. We hope that you're listening to this program because you want to us, my listeners and myself, learn from the Bible together. Why do we want to learn from the Bible? Is it just a theoretical exercise? No. The real goal is to try to please God. We want to please God. I mean, after all, look what God's done for us. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we need to know what the commandments are. I'm not talking about the Old Testament commandments. I'm talking about Jesus' commandments, the law of Christ in the New Testament. We need to know what they are, and we need to understand how to obey them so that we can be pleasing to God. That's why we study the Bible. Not just theoretical, it's so we'll know what to do to please God. The Bible is where God tells us how to please him. In John 8, verse 11, Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. I thought we'd talk about that. Jesus is telling this woman caught in adultery. He has a conversation with her. At the end of the conversation, when they're about to part ways, he says, he tells her, go and sin no more. You know, Jesus told the lame man the same thing in John 5, 14. Sin no more. Almost all denominational people and even some Christians would be incredulous at the thought. To them, it is impossible to live above sin. But that is exactly what Jesus is asking us, demanding us to do. So it must be possible. Now notice, I didn't say we do live above sin. I just said it's possible. And there's a big difference. If we have the view it is impossible to keep from sinning, then we won't feel responsible for our sins. Instead, we are in effect blaming our sins on God himself for creating us the way we are. If our goal is to only do five out of every ten things right in the Bible, because ten out of ten is unreachable, then when we do five out of ten, when we fail five out of ten times, when we sin pretty much constantly, we won't be disappointed in ourselves and we won't repent. But if we understand the truth that God commands us to, quote, be therefore perfect, Matthew 5, 48, then whenever we fail to reach perfection because of sin, we will be disappointed in our actions and repent. And note, repentance is the only way to gain forgiveness from God. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. But I don't think most believers really think repentance is necessary to be forgiven. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. I don't think most believers really think repentance is necessary to be forgiven. One of my relatives once said, I asked God to forgive me before I did such and such. She obviously thought she could be forgiven without repentance. To the contrary, Acts 2.38, Peter told some believers, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repentance is required in order to receive the remission of sins in becoming a Christian. Acts 3.19 reads, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Again, repentance is necessary. It's part of the conversion process. You have to repent to have your sins blotted out. Meaning, if you don't repent, these last two passages say 
you won't receive the remission of sins. Your sins will not be blotted out. Talking to Christian, a Christian in Acts 8.22, Peter told Simon, Repent therefore this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So a person that's a Christian, and we try to live above sin, we don't. We sin, how can we be forgiven as a Christian? We have to repent. We have to repent. It's required, meaning if we don't repent, we won't be forgiven. We'll be lost. Second Peter 3, 9 he puts it this way. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is very patient with us. He keeps putting off the second coming of Christ, according to this context, hoping that more people will repent. He's given them time to repent so they won't perish. You have to repent to avoid perishing. And many of those who do understand repentance is required don't seem to really understand what repentance is or what it means. In one of my personal evangelism studies recently, my student was talking about how his wife wasn't treating him right and how he was thinking of divorcing her, not for fornication. She hadn't cheated on him. When I explained to him how that would be a sin, well, read Matthew 5.32, Jesus said, whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. When I explained to him that divorcing her when she hadn't cheated on him would be a sin, according to passages like Matthew 5.32, he were said, yes, but, quote, I can repent later. We're under grace. I can repent later. We're under grace. See, he doesn't understand what repentance means. I'm sure a lot of believers think like this because they don't understand the nature of repentance. Repentance is a change of mind leading to a change of action. You can tell that from Matthew 21, verse 29. It's not something one can do before he sins because if he truly repents beforehand, then he won't commit the sin to begin with. And my student here didn't want to understand that repenting of divorcing your wife demands reconciliation if she'll take you back. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. Yes, my friend doesn't understand the nature of repentance and true repentance is always necessary to forgiveness. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call. That number, if you want to go on the air with your Bible question or comment, is 877-655-6755. Call us at 877-655-6755 if you have a Bible question or comment. Proverbs 28.13 reads this way. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Yes, God is a God of mercy, but he only shows mercy to those who forsake their sins. I am sure, getting back to John 8 verse 11, go and sin no more. I'm sure if Jesus had a conversation with us today like he did the lame man and the woman caught in adultery, he would tell us the same thing he told them, sin no more. So let's look briefly at a list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 and talk about what go and sin no more would look like. Here's that passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, 
will inherit the kingdom of God. That's from the New King James Version. So the Bible condemns a number of sins here. It says these people who practice such sins will not inherit the kingdom of God, meaning if they don't repent, they will not be saved. But what is a fornicator? Well, I think we know what it is. I study with people, though, who are living together, and they're considered faithful members of the congregation where they attend. They live together in fornication, not married. We call it, used to call it shacking up. The congregation just allows it. That con- congregation's not standing for anything if they do that. How about idolaters, idolatry? I don't know anybody myself who actually literally worships a statue. But I know plenty of so-called believers who appear to be worshiping money and what money can buy. And Colossians 3, 5 says covetousness is idolatry. If we put money before God, it becomes our idol. How about adulterers? What is that? Well, I know many believers who are in second or third marriages that violate Matthew 19, 9. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. I know a lot of people who claim to be believers in Christ, but they're in a second or third marriage that violate that passage. And again, they are considered faithful members of the congregation where they attend. The congregation should try to get them to repent. And if they won't, they have to withdraw from them. But no, the congregation just goes along with it. Why? Because they don't stand for the truth anymore. They're more interested in numbers and how much contribution there is no, so they're not interested in trying to tell people you have to leave sin, you have to repent of your sin to be forgiven. They might lose a few members that way. How about that passage also condemn homosexuality? So we even have gay churches in other churches that fully condone homosexuals. But if you read Romans 1, 26 and 27, for this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. 26 clearly condemns lesbianism. 27 clearly condemns the practice of gay men. Yet, we have all kinds of people who claim to be Christians who are living the gay lifestyle in the churches, a lot of churches, perhaps 50% of the congregations across America and Canada accept them. They totally compromise the truth. Now, Jesus said in John 8, verse 11, to the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, go and sin no more. And that is what we should say. Do, teach, practice, etc. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 655-6755 if you have a Bible question or comment and want to get on the air. The lines are wide open, so you're available to talk. Get on the air. Have your say. Six seven, excuse me, 877-655-6755. We hope you'll call in. You know, I thought what we'd do while we're waiting on a call is we'd talk a little bit more about obedience. Obedience. I find that that's the one thing most believers don't correctly understand about the Bible and the New Testament, our law in particular. Most believers have been led to think by their preachers or whoever that all you got to do to be saved is believe in Jesus. That obedience is not required. But let's look at some passages. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, He that doeth the will of my Father shall enter into heaven. 
Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So if you want to go to heaven, you have to do the will of the Father in heaven. Hebrews 5, 9, talking about Jesus, said he became the author or the source of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, there's no way to get around that passage. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. That means for 100% sure, conclusively, you have to obey Jesus to receive eternal salvation. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You have to obey Jesus to receive eternal salvation. And if you don't obey him, you won't be saved. If you're not a Christian and you don't obey him, well, you'll never become a Christian. If you are a Christian and you're not obeying him, you'll never make it to heaven. Now, the fact that we have to obey Jesus in this passage to receive eternal salvation, though, doesn't make us the source or the author of our eternal salvation. Of course not. No, Jesus is still the source. It's still the death of Christ that pays for our sins. The obedience is just like belief. It's just the condition we have to meet in order to be saved by the death of Christ. David from Illinois, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Uh, yes, thank you, and uh, thank you. This is the first time I, uh, I've been on this. So I just uh, came off a podcast that I was listening to, and they were discussing the thousand-year reign. So the thousand-year reign, but some people will spend that in some type of hell, not the lake of fire, but some type of hell, and they were discussing or explaining it as if it were like a prison sentence, and once the prison sentence was fulfilled, they may have that opportunity then to live in the New Jerusalem. I've never heard that in my 58 years of life. And I just it just caught me off guard, so I thought I'd uh, call in. So in Revelation 20, verse 4, it talks about the thousand-year reign. It talks about people. Uh, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with with Christ a thousand years. So the people who are living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years are the faithful Christians. It's not a bad burning uh, everlasting punishment type of place. It's it's the Christians are reigning with Christ during those thousand years. And that, those, that thousand Correct. years... David started in the first century time frame because Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So Jesus' reign over his kingdom, according to Jesus in Mark 9, 1, and again this is clear, was going to start while some of the people he was speaking to in Mark 9 were still alive. So unless we have some people today that are 2,000 years old, the reign of Christ, this kingdom, started in the first century time frame, and we're still in it today. Any follow-up, David? Uh, Yeah, so is there, before people enter into the lake of fire, during that 1,000-year reign, where are those people? Okay, so we're in the 1,000-year reign. We're in the thousand-year reign right now. Jesus is reigning right now. First Corinthians 15 says, For he must reign till the last enemy is put, put, put away, death. So until we have the end of physical death, Jesus is reigning. So we have the, the faithful are living on earth and the wicked. And so we live with the wicked and we try 
to live faithful to God. Jerry from Mississippi, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Well, it's actually Gary. Good evening. How you doing, Patrick? Hey, Gary. Thanks for your call. Great. Listen, uh, I, I listen faithfully. It's Sunday. I wait the program, even though uh, we, we uh, I respectfully disagree with you on some things. But I, as you were talking on marriage, I've been married, uh, went through a traditional ceremony 37 years ago. I've been with the same woman and all. So I'm, I'm saved with your assertion concerning marriage. But just out of curiosity, I was just sitting thinking I had somewhat of an epiphany. Now, marriage, are you supposing that marriage only take place on paper, or is matrimony in the heart? And I, I, when you answer that question, I, 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 if you allow me to follow up while I ask that question. Yeah, okay. I like the way you put that. You, you want me to answer the question and then let you follow up. I understand that. So in First <laughs> Peter 2, verse 13, Jesus said to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme and so forth, it goes on. But you have to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So to get married, since we must submit to the ordinance of man to get married in our society, we have to go through a legal process. In Alabama, it takes a marriage license. It takes a ceremony for somebody pronouncing you man or wife, whether that's a preacher or a justice of the peace. We have to submit to the civil law, and it demands uh, a legal procedure to get married. And Okay, and, now we, we... Go ahead. Go I'm ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Gary, I'm sorry. Okay, now in a, in a civilized, I say civilized uh, uh, society, we understand uh, about committing to the ordinance of, of, of men. But let's say in, in less uh, civilized societies where there are no auspices under which uh, marriage and other means of life are orchestrated, you know, just say that there are some uh, individuals who live uh, in uh, far, far away places on the face of this earth. And uh, those, uh, a man and a woman, they decide that they want to uh, be considered as husband and wife. Is, is it, is, would God recognize that as a marriage as they are faithful and they, uh, you know, they're adhering to the monogamous relationship and saying that they are committed one to another and does not go outside those bounds? Uh, does that, would that constitute marriage in the sight of God in, in, in your scriptorial opinion? Right, it would. You know, in our society, we have to obey the laws of the land. But if you had a country that didn't have its marriage was not a legal thing that you went through, you just have to do what that country, what what the people in your society recognize as marriage. For example, Gary, how, how old are you? I'm 62. I'm 65. So I, I would say it was something like 30-something years ago. There was a miniseries on TV called Roots. Did you happen mm -hmm. to see part of that miniseries? I, I did. I, I, okay. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I did not see any of it, but I was told that when they went back to where Kunta Kinta came from, the way in that society in Africa, the way they married is a man and a woman. They decided to get married, had an engagement like we do verbally, but they mm -hmm. jumped over a broom from one side mm -hmm. of a broom to another to get married. That that mm -hmm. was depicted that way in this miniseries in Roots. So in mm -hmm. that TV series Roots. So if that's what they mm -hmm. had to do in that society, I don't know if they were exaggerating, but but I'm assuming that's really the way it was at some point. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then, is then the man an and the woman would have to jump over the broom from one mm -hmm. direction to the other, and that's how they would right. get married. Whatever the society right. dictated mm -hmm. about how you got married, that's mm -hmm. how you do it. But you can't just mm -hmm. live together. You do have to get mm -hmm. married. You have to go through the procedure that society dictates. Mm -hmm. You follow so what I'm someone saying? 
Absolutely. So if someone were to come into our culture from that culture and come into America and decided that, hey, uh, we want to call ourselves husband and wife, so we'll just jump, jump the broom and that will constitute marriage. This is a uh, ceremony, religious ceremonial uh, component of their uh Belief, so you're saying that God would recognize that. I guess the point I'm getting. No, at, in our if they uh, came in our society, they would have to do it according to the laws of their state, Alabama or Mississippi, wherever you live. They have to do it according to the laws now, of the state. But but of course, we know the Constitution say that if if they say that this is per day, per their religion, you know what the Constitution say about that. So I, what I'm asking, I guess, is that what, does that paper consummate uh, and constitute? And, and, and is, it, is it the ultimate uh, declaration of, of matrimony, of marriage, that, that paper? Uh, is it actually those two hearts joined together in love and respect and honor and monogamy uh, toward each other? I, I, I contend okay. the latter. I don't, I don't mind telling you yeah. I contend that it's okay. the latter. Well, I know. But, but what you're doing is presenting a false dichotomy. It's not the paper or the people committing to one another in love. It's both. The people commit to one another in love, and then they do what their society dictates. And if they just, it is, it's, it's possible to commit fornication. So there, with you in Alabama, for example, if you don't get married and you just start sleeping together, that's fornication. Now, let's talk some more about obedience here. Obedience. In James 2.24, James said, you see them have that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So now this verse isn't talking about the grounds or basis of our salvation. What what does the trick? The blood of Christ is what pays for our salvation. This verse is talking about what are the conditions you have to meet in order to be saved by the death of Christ. And it's not faith only. A lot of preachers will say it's faith only. All you got to do is believe. All you got to do is accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. No, he says you're justified by works and not by faith only. And so obedience is required to be saved. 1 Peter 1.22, the first part of that verse says this. Seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. So we purify our souls in obeying the truth. Now, Acts 15, 9 says we purify our hearts through faith. So no doubt faith is necessary to be purified from your sins. But 1 Peter 1, is saying that you have to obey the truth in order to be purified from your sins. If all you do is believe, but you don't obey, if you're not faithful to God, you won't be purified from your sins. And not only do you have to obey, it's not just obey anything. You have to obey the truth. And that's what this program is all, all about, trying to preach the truth in contrast to the false doctrines of men. Because most denominations will say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, we, we think you got to be immersed for baptism, but other churches think sprinkling's okay. And we're both right. It doesn't matter which one you do, even though we think the Bible teaches immersion. No, you have to obey the truth. Only the truth will set us free from sin, John 8, 32. We're only a true disciple of Christ if we continue in his word, John 8, 31. You have to obey the truth. It takes obedience, not just belief, not faith only, and it has to be obeying the truth to be purified from your sins. How about Revelation 22, 14? Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Now, what city is that talking about? Well, really, uh, it's talking about the city of heaven. In the Garden of Eden, you had the 
tree of life where Adam and Eve, as long as they could partake of that, they were going to live physically forever. When we get to heaven, there'll be a tree of life where we can partake of it to live spiritually forever. But who, according to this verse, has the right to go there? Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Only those who do his commandments. And they're not we're talking about Moses' commandments, the law of Moses' commandments. We're talking about Jesus' commandments. They're found in the New Testament. The New Testament commandments. We've got to do those commandments, his commandments, in order to enter into heaven. That's pretty simple. That's pretty clear. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Lord doesn't necessarily mean God. It means boss. Why are you calling me boss and you're not doing the things that I say? Jesus said in John 15, 14, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. People say you got to have a relationship with Jesus. You do. To be his friend, you have to do whatever he commands. If you would like a free one-hour phone Bible study with me sometime at your convenience, call or text me at 256-682-9753. Free one-hour phone Bible study with me sometime at your convenience, 256-682-9753.